from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to an episode of the Centre for European Reform podcasts. I'm Zach Myers, Assistant Director at the CER. After waves of hype and disappointment, artificial intelligence has in recent years made leaps and bounds. Large language-based models like ChatGPT have taken the world by storm, accruing many millions of users far more quickly than any previous consumer technologies have. But economists, technologists and politicians all have different views on how optimistic or pessimistic we should be about this technology. On the one hand, it could prove to be transformational from everything from cancer screening to drug discovery to astronomy and all realms of science. And for Europe in particular, there is a huge economic potential. Europe's had low productivity growth for many years, particularly in its services sector. And really deploying AI can offer the opportunity to boost that and to catch up with some of the growth that countries like the US, which are more keen to adopt technologies quickly, have seen. And finally, of course, for Europe, it offers an opportunity to get back into digital markets in a big way. And to provide an opportunity for European tech firms to succeed in ways that they haven't in previous waves of technology. But of course, we more and more hear about nervousness about the technology, about the risks that it creates, everything from kind of mass unemployment to stoking disinformation, undermining elections, harming cybersecurity, the list goes on and on. And so the question that Europe is facing is how do we make the most of AI while also trying to manage the risks? Of course, lots of other countries and areas around the world are asking this same question, and they're all taking a different balance. The EU is currently in the final stages of negotiating its own Artificial Intelligence Act, which, if it can get concluded quickly, could be the first general law covering uses of artificial intelligence. But in the final stretch of negotiations, things have hit a bit of a roadblock and there are suddenly kind of different views between European Parliament and some major member states about what the regulation should look like. So to talk more about this, I'm absolutely delighted that we've got Kai Zenner with us. Kai is the head of office and digital policy advisor for MEP Axel Voss. And he was ranked in this year's Politico's Power 40 as one of the top influencers in Brussels. And that's due in no small part to the huge role that he has played in informing the Artificial Intelligence Act, along with working on a whole range of other digital regulations. So Kai, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you are in an incredibly busy time, and so we're delighted you're willing to share this time with us. Thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> I'm wondering if we can start off by talking about the scariest stuff so we can move on to a bit of optimism later, hopefully. And of course, I'm talking from the UK where we've recently had an AI safety summit, which has been very much focused on existential risks of AI and which many technologists have accused of being unduly alarmist. But it's also true that Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has also talked about the risks of extinction from AI in her latest State of the Union speech. So I'm just wondering if I can get your take on these fears, you know, these fears that AI might escape human control or become so intelligent that it will find ways around the safeguards that humans have put in place. To me, that seems a little bit fantastical given the state of the technology today which is still, you know, a very advanced form of autocorrect, but one that doesn't seem like it's suddenly going to turn into some generalized form of intelligence. And many skeptics think that the risks are being talked up purely so that there can be regulation, which will protect the incumbents who are already ahead of the game and stop smaller players from entering so easily. So I'd love to hear your take. Do we need to be so worried about existential risk? 
Yeah, it's a really interesting situation, I would say, in the European Parliament, because normally, as you, as someone who is also now for some time in Brussels, knows already, normally the European Parliament is basically very activated by every hype and um, is then concerned about something that is heavily discussed in newspapers and so on and so on. On the whole question of AI and especially those existential risks, I was surprised from the beginning that policymakers from basically all groups, and in particular those policymakers that are now negotiating the AI Act, took a very realistic perspective. And this perspective I also as a staffer share, and which is very close to what you kind of indicated in your questions, those risks probably that are now flying around and that we are the core of the summit in London. Well, of course, we should address them to a certain extent, and we should also take them into consideration in our negotiations and in our work on the AI Act, but they should really not be on the forefront. I think there, more and more, it's clear that artificial intelligence is posing, especially foundation model generative AI, is posing huge risks when it comes to deep fakes, when it comes to fake news, when it comes to the upcoming elections next year. And yeah, policymakers here in the parliament are really very much focused on those immediate risks. But nevertheless, I think, yes, we see a lot of advances, especially when it comes to those companies like DeepMind, OpenAI. They are constantly working on making their models even better, even more, yeah, let's call it in brackets, knowledgeable or intelligent. And therefore, of course, I think one positive aspect of the AI Safety Summit in London is to really bring together, let's say, researchers that know a lot about this stuff and create some international cooperation in this research field. And if you do both things, so combine basically policy making that is very much focused on the immediate and current threats and then combine it with a more international cooperation slash research community approach for the more, let's say, midterm or long-term risk. I think this is a good way out. Thanks. I completely agree. And one of the controversial decisions around the AI Safety Summit was the inclusion of China, you know, as an entity around the table. So I wondered whether, leaving aside ex existential risk, whether the geopolitical risks of knowing that there are going to be countries that are using AI for technological and military supremacy and are going to be trying to influence global norms and standards. You know, this is clearly not something that the AI Act in Europe by itself can really solve. We've seen some different countries take different approaches here. So the US has obviously installed export controls to limit the ability for China to access advanced chips that would be used for the most sophisticated AI systems. And the Netherlands has kind of also agreed to extend those controls to more and more of its chip making equipment. But do you think that there is any prospect that China can be a trustworthy partner in regulating AI and mitigating some of these more kind of geopolitical and military type risks? Or do you think that the only solution here is that we need to keep the EU and the US as far ahead in the race as possible? 
So definitely the latter one should be the outcome or really the main focus of our policy work. But nevertheless, I would argue, and this is really now my personal opinion, because I actually don't know if I'm now speaking <laughs> for our political group, but I think it was very, very smart what the UK government did. You need to include China in all those talks, even though you are not agreeing on everything with them. The same, in my personal opinion, applies to climate change. Without a country like China, the COP doesn't really bring that much. And I think it was really wise to have them on board in London. And we need them if we want international agreements that really work. And I think one of the effects of including them, we saw now in the last days, I think two days ago or three days ago, President Biden and the Chinese president were signing this contract or agreement on how to deal with lethal automatic weapon systems powered by artificial intelligence. And I think this is a major breakthrough. We need to see how it plays out and if both countries are really sticking to those agreements and also if more countries are following or joining basically. But it's at least indicating something really well that both countries, again, do not share all their opinions, but at least on major points, there is cooperation. So yeah, to make it short again, I think it was a wise step. And again, we do not need to agree with them on everything. On something, I think we as Western world should be also much more vocal in our opposition. But on the other hand, again, we are one world and <laughs> on certain things we need to work together. Otherwise, we will not manage. Yeah, and I think greater EU unity and EU transatlantic unity would be helpful in making sure that there's a coherent line on definitely China with China. Yeah. If we move a little more closer to home, and this is, I promise, the last kind of risk that is outside the realm of the AI Act, but for a long time, what's been on a lot of Europeans' minds when they think about AI is job losses. And I tend to think that this fear is a little overhyped because when you look at previous waves of technology, A, they've usually taken quite a long time to achieve massive changes in labor distribution. But secondly, yes, there have been some job losses, but you often find that the tasks that people do within jobs change and also that there are entirely new jobs that are created as a result. And finally, I think it's a slightly odd concern to have given that Europe is facing really a skills crisis. And so anything we can do to reduce the need for highly skilled labor would actually be much more beneficial for the EU economy than trying to hold back from adopting new technology. But like this fear is definitely a real thing. And it certainly means that I think governments need to think about how do we manage the redistribution? How do we compensate the losers so that there is an opportunity for them to reskill and re-enter the workforce in a different way? And so I'm just wondering if you can tell me kind of how the EU has been thinking about this and whether enough thought has been given to it as opposed to just the regulatory side. Also on this point, I was really surprised about policymakers because normally, let's say they are taking our jobs. Now it's Roberts. <laughs> it's one of the things that is often flying around in the political debates. But here on AI, I would say most parliamentarians and myself, I am also share your opinion that if we look in human history, there were so many rises of general purpose technology, like fire, like engine, and so on and so on. And every time a new technology came, there was talk about, okay, now a lot of people are losing their job and they will never find a new job again. And history showed us, no, what is true is that there is sometimes a kind of transition period or really transformative period where maybe some people 
people need to reskill, need to look a little bit in different areas and they worked before, but they still find another proper job. And I think this will be the case again also for artificial intelligence. And maybe one of the first areas where we see it is now with the rise of generative AI, I think a lot of graphic designers and also IT experts that did coding in the past, they really need to immediately change that a little bit because, yeah, now Midjourney or recent even ChatGBT is able to produce really high quality graphics. And well, now maybe those graphic designers need to accelerate in prompting, in using AI and so on and so on. And I think we see it already that there is a shift, but what we don't see is that there are certainly 100,000 graphic designers without any job. So I think this is already indicating that you and I and our assessment are very likely correct. Yes, we tried to use AI to develop a logo for one of our recent events and the feedback was not positive. So I think that there's a little while to go before graphic designers will completely um, lose their employment prospects. If we move to the AI Act specifically now, I think one of the key things I really admired about the proposal from the very start was that it was a really risk-based approach that was focused on, you know, what are the specific risks that either AI is going to create or that it's going to make a lot worse than in terms of consequence or likelihood than these risks were before the technology existed. And how do we kind of focus the regulation on those so that we're not unduly hindering companies from taking up the technology where it has really positive use cases and particularly where the risk is quite low. We're at the end, I hope, of the negotiation process and there are certainly still some big issues still to resolve. But do you think that the AI Act, looking at where it is now, is still delivering this promise of being kind of risk-based? proportionate regulation that will promote investment in AI in Europe rather than just make companies kind of scared of the compliance costs? It's a really difficult question. So I can only say yes and no. The commission, I think, made a few major mistakes when they were drafting the report. And this idea of having one horizontal AI exit is applicable to every sector, to every use case in the same way is just something I will never agree on. And we as legal committee, the European Union actually had a complete different approach. We were a little bit more US American. We wanted an AI bills of rights, which is very general, but horizontal and then sectorial legislation that is making those differences. And the second point, conceptually, where I think the commission did something really wrong was trying to put artificial intelligence in fixed risk classes, basically thinking of, let's say, a mouse like I have here on my table, which of course has only one intended purpose and is also not able to change over time. But as we all know, especially with machine learning, deep learning foundation models now, it's not so clear those systems or those models can evolve over some time because of different input data and so on and so on. And those two conceptual flaws that I now was describing, I think we were not completely able to fix in all of our negotiations. Nevertheless, the commission did also a lot of good things. So for example, the heavy fo focus on harmonized standards by Article 40, they are giving a presumption of conformity to every developer that is developing his or her AI system in compliance with those technical harmonized standards from Senelec, for example, and so on and so on. This, on the 
other hand, will help probably AI developers a lot in coming compliant rather easy compared, for example, with the GDPR, where those harmonized standards were missing until now because they were not part of the legislation. So in the end, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And we also don't really know how the AI Act will play out in practice, even if in the legislative piece, we now fix most of those conceptual problems that I talked about, but also all those legislative overlaps with existing legislation. If we made all the technical requirements and obligations, for example, high-risk AI systems clear enough, even then it's not enough because the whole AI Act will only work when, as I said already, harmonized standards are there in time, if there are guidelines, guidance there in time from the commission, from national competent authorities, and also if those national competent authorities have enough staff, if they have enough experts. The same also is applicable to the commission. And there's another big problem. Will a country like the Czech Republic, Malta, Lithuania, and so on, will they be able to compete with Google and other companies when it's about attracting talent to work for the state in the future when it comes to the enforcement? And on all those points, it's a little bit depending if in the end the whole regulative system that the AI Act wants to place in the European Union is really working. My feeling is that especially in the first months and years, probably we will see a lot of problems similar to the GDPR. And in this period of high legal uncertainty, very likely it will be rather harmful for innovation and many companies, especially especially small companies, in my opinion, will very likely struggle with the AI Act, which probably is not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, that sounds quite similar to the GDPR experience. I completely agree with you that, that there's going to be a real need to think about how do we resource regulators. And as you alluded to, I think that there are a lot of regulators who already have tasks that are going to be highly relevant to AI. You think about like anti-discrimination bodies, privacy, data protection authorities, agencies looking at online safety. All of those agencies are going to need many more resources to deal with the existing problems that AI has created that we don't necessarily need a new law for. But I do worry when we've already got a, a skills crisis in Europe, how exactly the regulation is going to be able to be properly enforced. But of course, like Europe is not by itself looking at AI regulation. And we've seen a lot of different initiatives at the international level and between various different countries and also domestically in recent months. So that includes the White House Voluntary Code of Conduct for AI firms. And it's also now using public procurement rules to try to impose some standards on AI in the US. There's various initiatives in the OECD and in various other international forums. And I'm wondering, in your view, how well the AI Act is compatible with these different initiatives that are all being discussed internationally? Do you think it's helpful or harmful that the EU is kind of racing ahead to put something on the table before there's a wide degree of consensus about what good regulation in this sphere actually looks like? Or do you think that this is going to be more of the Brussels effect and the AI Act will just become the de facto around the world? I think the jury is still out on that. And again, we really need to wait a little bit how the enforcement part is working. If 
there is such a high legal uncertainty that I'm currently a little bit afraid about, especially when it comes to SMEs and startups. On the other hand, if we are going a little bit back into the history of AI policymaking, and if we are also comparing the AI Act to other pieces around the world, yes, of course, the European Union is going very much into details and is really coming up with a very detailed piece of legislation, especially if you are comparing it with the executive order or to those policy proposals that are flying around in the United Kingdom. But in the end, every piece of legislation or of AI policymaking that I saw, at least in the last months and years, also in Brazil, in Japan, the discussions in South Korea, in Singapore, and so on, they all go back to those internationally agreed concepts. Because as you know, AI is also in the policy field not something new, but the OECD, for example, is talking now yeah, almost for 20 years already about AI policy. And things that you see now in the AI Act, like the obligation on transparency, human oversight, anti-discrimination, and so on, all of that are internationally accepted concepts that have been developed in those international fora that I was talking about, like the OECD, but also UNESCO, the United Nations in general, Council of Europe, and so on and so on. So at least in this initial stage, I think there's a lot of alignment already. Then now going back to the first part of my answer, yes, the European Union is going much more into detail. And when it comes to the translation of those internationally agreed concepts into concrete policy proposals, yes, there we see very different ways of how to do it, which makes it even more important, I think, that after we have different approaches on the table to make another round of alignment, to really go back to those international fora and make sure that, for example, the international harmonized standards are from ISO, for example, are fitting together with the Sensenelec standard in the European Union, that we all have a similar definition of AI, for example, that we are addressing foundation models in a similar way and so on and so on. I think this will be a hugely important stage after the AI Act has been adopted and maybe in the United States there, a few more advances in Canada and so on and so on. And then also what I think will be interesting to see if we are having a few proposals on the table that are applicable, I think other countries that so far will not be active will look a little bit how it plays out again in the European Union where we have their chaotic system or situation that is harmful for SMEs and startups. If this is the case, probably a lot of other countries like India, for example, will then tend more to a US American approach of AI policy. If it's working well, then the Russet's effect, I think, is still possible that then at least certain pieces of the AI Act will indeed become an international standard. Thanks. And just as a, a final question, I was wondering if you could just give us a progress update on the negotiations, because I mean, we're at the trilogue stage now. So, you know, the institutions are kind of battling it out between them. And it seems to me that there's still a couple of areas of pretty profound disagreement. One of them is foundation models, which is not something that the original proposal 
talked a lot about at all. And so it seems to me that some MEPs and some member states are diametrically opposed on whether or not there should be self-regulation or more harsh form of regulation. And then on kind of copyright and then biometrics, it seems like there's still proposals that are flying about. So where do you think this will all land? And also, what do you think this means for timing? Because as I understand it, if we don't get a deal politically by the end of the year, then the proposal might be in a bit of trouble. But love to hear your thoughts on that. Indeed, it is the case if we agree on a political level on the main issues at the end of this year, on the 6th of December, there's the last political trialogue. It will become really tricky because the upcoming Belgium presidency, which is starting on the 1st of January, has already identified different focus areas for their presidency. And to be fair, it's also often the case that not every member state has the expertise on every topic. And yeah, they were also like everyone expecting that the AI negotiations is done and dusted, let's say, and they can really concentrate their energy on other things. And also time-wise, there is a hard stop even for technical negotiations on the 9th of February. So after this date, it's not possible to continue our talks and even if we are now not managing a political deal in December and the Belgians would agree to have another trialogue, for example, in the end of January, it means that after that we would have maybe one week left on technical level to fix everything, which is, again, kind of impossible. And to now sound even more pessimistic, yes, indeed, there is a lot of stuff still on the table. We have discussed now most of the articles on technical level and the important ones most of them also on political level. But as you said, maybe to start with um, the prohibitions, the positions between member states and their, especially the left-wing political groups like Social Democrats and so on, are so different. We have SND and Greens who would like to completely prohibit facial recognition within the European Union. And we have the French government that wants to use it without any restrictions in order to make the Olympic Games next year in Paris more safe. How do you find a middle ground? I honestly, until today, do not know how they will do it. We have with copyright, with topics like sustainability within the AI Act and potential overlaps with the eco-design regulation and so on and so on. Also other political points where like the last topic for the Greens is hugely important. Also this point, how to solve it, very much unclear. And indeed, foundation models became a huge topic. We thought that we would have a good compromise on the table that was kind of going for a two-tier approach, so general transparency obligations um, for all foundation models, and then for a second tier, which is similar to digital gatekeepers, DMA or VLOPs, very large online platforms from the DSA, would have a limited number of obligations for those powerful or very capable models that would make sense because those models will become or are already hugely important within the AI value chain. So many, many companies, downstream companies, and most of those companies are in the European Union. We really want to make sure that those models that many of them will use for their downstream products and services are fulfilling certain minimum criteria. In the council, 
Some member states like Italy, France, and Germany see it a little bit different. They do agree with what I said right now, but for them, this two-tier approach could become problematic, especially when it comes to the threshold. So how to define those actors in the second tier? And I think lengthy discussions would be required, but again, looking on our clock, we don't have it this time. And therefore, now we all try to finish everything in time. There are constant negotiations day and night, also at the weekend. So we really give it a try. But if we manage in the end, no one really knows. And despite um, our prohibitions and smaller things like sustainability and so on and so on, yes, we have especially foundation models still on the table. We have the whole question of governance on the table. So is there an AI office which is centralizing a lot of enforcement and governance in the European Union in Brussels? We have also the list of high-risk use cases in Annex 3, which is on the table. And I would say those four things are the main stumbling points right now. But as I mentioned with sustainability and with other parts, there are also a lot of small issues that also needs to be fixed. And again, looking on the calendar, we almost not have a lot of time left. So it's really tricky. Okay, I promised that we were going to end on an optimistic note. And so <laughs> after that, I think I need to ask you one last quick question, which is, is there anything that you're seeing in you know, the European tech startup scene that makes you optimistic that Europe will find ways to harness AI and to you know, hopefully become leaders in, in at least some uses or innovations associated with the tech? Thanks for this question, because indeed it was a little bit too pessimistic. And my big fear that I underlined about legal uncertainty is there. But what I see and what is making me much more optimistic is if you compare a little bit 2018, where the GDPR became applicable, and now what I see is a private sector that is very much aware what is coming. Most of the companies have heard about the AI Act, have already investigated what is coming, how to become compliant together with their trade associations. They started already to develop best practices and so on and so on. And there are also a lot of startups and of course also big four accounting firms and so on that are already creating a kind of layer of AI governance. And this, again, I think GDPR governance in the private sector, we didn't have that much. We had a lot of law firms that we are asking for a lot of money in return to making you compliant, but it was more a process. And even today, there are still certain elements missing and so on. And there, again, I think the private sector this time, if it's working out with the AI Act, I think as a private sector, sector did it a little bit because they are trying to prevent things that could reappear. And I think many companies have already realized, going back to this problem of talent when it comes to national competent authorities, that probably even if the states manage to get here and their deep learning expert, for example, for their enforcement body, the state will still depend a lot on expertise from companies. And this, again, I think companies realized and they are already now starting to 
have very, very intensive, let's say, public-private dialogue. And I think there also regulatory sandboxes could help that really the private sector and the public sector are working much more together to, to make it work and to share experience, share some best practices and so on and so on. And this, I would say on a positive note, it's looking much better. And again, the private sector woke up a little bit and is now much more committed to share a little bit of the burden and uh, of the responsibilities to make it all work. Hi, thank you so much for your time today. I know that you have an incredibly busy schedule, particularly this month, but hopefully there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But in the meantime, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. Thank you. This has been another episode of the Centre for European Reforms podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.